Okay, hi, my name is George Chauncey. I'm the director of the Center for Gender Studies, and it's a distinct honor to welcome you to this event. I want to begin by thanking Susan Sesh and the other amazing people at the Human Rights Program for organizing this event, and the Center for Comparative Constitutionalism, the Chicago Center for Contemporary Theory, uh, which joined with the Center for Gender Studies and co-sponsoring it. We all leapt at Susan's invitation to join in sponsoring this event, both because it's such an honor to be associated with the distinguished Justice Ali Sachs, whose lifelong commitment to the struggle against apartheid and for justice and human dignity has earned him the admiration and gratitude of the global community. And because the issue he addresses today the decision of the South African Constitutional Court, which he wrote, to extend the right to marry to same-sex couples is so timely and of such consequence. Just a year ago, it seemed to most Americans that the campaign to secure marriage equality for lesbian and gay couples was dead in its tracks. In November 2004, voters in 11 states passed constitutional amendments limiting marriage to heterosexual couples. Moreover, on the morning after the election, the national press quick, quickly and uncritically accepted the Christian rights claim that the marriage issue had galvanized its followers and resulted in President Bush's narrow re-election. Even though subsequent more dispassionate analysis of the vote in Ohio and other contested states has discredited that claim as self-serving political spin, it lingers and fuels the resentment of some progressives against the advocates of marriage equality for daring to ask for so much so quickly. What a difference a year makes. The Christian right has placed marriage referendum on the ballot in several states this year, and we can expect several more next year. And as predictably as the spring follows the winter, the Republican Party will put a federal constitutional amendment up for a vote in the Congress in the next few months so as to embarrass their opponents caught between their sense of political expediency and their avowed commitment to justice, equality, and dignity. But something else has been happening in the country. Not only have several court challenges to the ban on marriage continued to move forward in California, Connecticut, New Jersey, and several other states, but there's been remarkable progress on the political and legislative front. Just five years ago, Governor Howard Dean of Vermont was pilloried as a radical anti-family activist for signing court-ordered legislation that created civil unions for gay couples in Vermont. Public support for civil unions grew so decisively in the next three or four years that in 2004, every major Democratic candidate for president supported civil unions. Since the election, the legislatures of New Jersey and Maine have passed laws providing a degree of recognition and security to gay couples. And most strikingly, Connecticut's legislature with the support of the Republican governor, passed sweeping civil union legislation, and California State Assembly became the first state body to legislatively enact full marriage equality for gay couples. And Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger was widely criticized for vetoing it. As people have come to understand the issue better, that the exclusion of gay couples from marriage has enormous consequences for very real people, because there are so many rights, protections, obligations, and benefits conveyed by marriage and marriage alone, support for marriage equality has grown. 
Even more strikingly, the campaign for marriage equality has gathered strength as a global movement, and indeed many of the efforts in the US are inspired by that movement. Great Britain's decision to grant civil status and marriage-like benefits to same-sex couples, though not marriage itself, gained world attention recently when Elton John got married. I was in China, and even in China, it got a fair amount of coverage. More important, the decision of Canada and Spain, and now South Africa, to join the small but growing community of nations to grant full equality to gay couples will have enormous consequences. The eloquent decision Justice Sachs wrote for the South African Constitutional Court has already discussed a spark discussion around the globe. This weekend, I was in Shanghai for the first symposium on gay rights ever to be held in mainland China. And even there, marriage was on the agenda. No one expects the Chinese government to recognize gay marriages anytime soon, but it was clear that the government officials and legal experts who addressed the issue were aware that the idea was irreversibly on the global agenda. South Africa's decision may well have consequences in the United States as well. We saw in the Lawrence Sodomy case that at least some Supreme Court justices are aware of the fact that the rest of the world is moving forward on gay rights issues and that it will be increasingly embarrassing for the United States to stand outside this trajectory forward. In the coming struggles in the United States, the example of South Africa will be important, perhaps not as a precedent for the new Supreme Court taking shape, but at least as a moral inspiration for the rest of us. I'm pleased now to introduce Martha Nussbaum, the Ernst Freund Distinguished Service Professor of Law and Ethics in the Department of Philosophy, the Law School, and the Divinity School, who will introduce Justice Sachs. Thank you. I actually just ran here from Ultimate Bride down on Oak Street because my daughter's getting married in June. So I just want to say to George that if this change hadn't been going on, you know, it would feel really bad, like joining a racist country club. Uh, but I will say, you know, she had, she just had an interview at the Historical Association with a small conservative southern college. And when she mentioned she was getting married in June, for the rest of the interview, whenever they mentioned the partner, they very carefully said he or she. So this was really great. And it is. I mean, it is just a sign that things are moving. But it's... Um, it's such a great honor to introduce Albie Sachs, and it's so hard to do because he's written, he's had such a heroic and amazing life, and he's also written about it better than anyone else could do, I think. But I'll just say a few straightforward things and then read a, a couple of bits from him. When Albie Sachs was six during World War II, he received a card from his father expressing the wish that he would grow up to be a soldier in the fight for liberation. His career in human rights activism started at the age of 17, when as a second year law student at the University of Cape Town, he took part in the Defiance of Unjust Laws campaign. Meanwhile, he got his BA and LLB degrees and was already practicing as an advocate at the Cape Town Bar uh, at the age of 21. The bulk of his work involved defending people charged under racist statutes and repressive security laws. Many were facing the death sentence. He himself was raided by the security police, subjected to banning orders restricting his movement, and eventually placed in solitary confinement without trial for two prolonged spells of detention. In 1966, he went into exile 
He spent 11 years uh, teaching law in England, and then he moved to Mozambique and worked for a further 11 years there as a law professor and a legal researcher. In 1988, he was blown up by a bomb placed in his car in Maputo by South African security agents, and he lost an arm and the uh, sight of one eye. After he recovered from the, the bomb, he devoted himself full-time to preparations for a new democratic constitution for South Africa. In 1990, he returned home, and as a member of the Constitutional Committee and the National Executive of the ANC, took an active part in the uh, negotiations which led to South Africa becoming a constitutional democracy. After the first democratic election in 1994, he was appointed by Mandela to serve on the newly established Constitutional Court, and he has been uh, involved as well, as well as writing many of the most important decisions of the court in areas such as social and economic rights and other human rights issues. He's been very involved also with the art and architecture of the court, which he calls a palace for the people. Albi Sachs has written extensively on gender rights, social and economic rights, and the environment. His books include The Jail Diary of Albi Sachs, which has been dramatized by the Royal Shakespeare Company and broadcast on the BBC. The Soft Vengeance of a Freedom Fighter, which is currently being made into a movie. And most recently, The Free Diary of Albi Sachs, which was published in 2004, which talks about his life and his travels with his partner, Vanessa. And concerning this recent book, uh, Sachs said, quote, all my previous books have dealt with disaster. I'm not convinced that I can write well about happiness. What a challenge to depict not calamity survived, but joy experienced. And now I'll just read three um, extracts. It's a long interview he gave, which you can find on the web, uh, an interviewer at Berkeley in 1998. The first is about his father. My first memories are of running on the beach in a very beautiful part of Cape Town called Clifton and being told, your father's coming, and seeing big white tennis shoes. That was my father. He and my mother were separated at the time. I looked up, up, up. Way up there was a head, a body talking to me. He was a big figure. He was a trade union leader, Solly Sachs, very controversial, always involved in scraps. He fought the bosses, he fought the government, he fought my mother, he fought his second wife. And when he ran out of everyone else, he fought his children. At his funeral in the 1970s in London, one of the speakers there said, and I'm quite sure if God exists, Solly's up there arguing with him right now. Second is about writing. Writing in moments of disaster has been extremely important for me, to come to terms with what's happened and to turn the ugliness into beauty. When I was locked up, detained, the idea of writing a book brought an immediate sense of turning disaster into something good. And all the intensity of emotion and the violence of what was happening to me, to my psyche, I felt, when I come out, I'm going to write it up. I'm going to turn bad into good, the bad being like that current, that energy, that waterfall that's coming down. And this was the turbine that would spin round and round, producing electricity, which would be beautiful. And the last one is about his attitude toward his, um, his, his opponents. He said, I was very worried. I, I felt a good revolutionary is angry, wants to storm the Bastille, wants to kill the oppressors. And I found I didn't have that sort of emotion. I thought there was something wrong with me, that I needed psychoanalysis or something to let real anger come out. But that's just the way it was. I didn't hate the guards. I didn't want to pick up a dagger and plunge it into their back. Even with the people questioning me, interrogating me, 
I never had that immediate, feral, personal kind of anger. And in the end, I decided, well, that's just the way I am. I might mention that amongst my greatest heroes, and I did reading afterwards, not heroes, I don't even like the term heroes, and I hate being called a hero, the people I identified very much with were Gandhi, without getting into his philosophy, but his description of his trials, what he did in jail, and the suffragettes. I love the suffragettes. And I think I love them very much because they made a struggle with just themselves. They went to jail and they resisted force feeding. And they didn't go out to kill the enemy and to storm and to break down. It wasn't physical in that sense. All they had was themselves and their will and their determination and their courage and a sense of personal dignity and beauty. I identify very strongly with them. Here, I welcome Albie Sachs. Two people met socially in Pretoria, South Africa, were immediately attracted to each other, went out together, found they enjoyed each other's company, and decided eventually to set up a joint home. Their friends took them as a couple, their neighbours saw them as a couple and they decided they would like to formally register their union and get public recognition of their love. Like many people in those circumstances, they decided to get married. The only problem was both are women. They went to the marriage registry and the officer said, sorry, I can't marry you. The common law of South Africa says that marriage is the union of one man and one woman for life. It doesn't include two women. In addition, the Marriage Act, the statute passed by the South African Parliament to formalize marriages, has a vow which says, I, so-and-so, so-and-so, formally declare that I take you, so-and-so, so-and-so, to be my lawful wife or husband. And in your case, there's no wife or husband, because the very phrase presupposes it's a woman and a man. The couple, a Ms. Fourie and Ms. Bontes, decided that this was a violation of their constitutional rights to be treated as equals. Section 9 of the South African Constitution, 9.1, says that everyone has the right to equal protection and benefit of the law. 
Section 9.3 says that no one shall be unfairly discriminated against on grounds of, there's quite a long list, race, colour, creed, opinion, birth, pregnancy, marital status, disability, and included in the list is sexual orientation. And they said the refusal to marry us is clearly a violation of our rights as protected by our constitution. They went to the High Court. There were various technical problems related to the manner in which they brought the case. And so the Gay and Lesbian Equality Project brought a second case sometime afterwards in the High Court asking for the common law to be amended to bring it in line with the Constitution by the courts and for the Marriage Act to be changed to include the word or spouse after the word wife, husband or spouse. The two cases followed separate tracks and we decided that they should be heard jointly in our court. As you can imagine, the courtroom was full and we have television cameras in our court. We feel we are a public institution and just as the public have an interest in knowing what's going on in the legislature and parliament, so they have a right to see the judges of our court in action. We don't have witnesses who might be intimidated by the cameras and so we have cameras in our court and we had a few extra on this particular occasion from various international organizations. And the court chamber itself was jam-packed and we had an overflow in the foyer outside. And I remember looking down and seeing lots of the people in the court had t-shirts on and the only word I could make out was marriage. But I couldn't make out whether they were saying marriage for men and women only or marriage for everybody. So it was quite baffling. And what's interesting is you can't tell just by looking at the people, if they're young, if they're old, if they're black or white or male or female, there's no distinct physical appearance that says we are gay or we are straight. We had counsel representing the state, it was in the form of an appeal against decisions in the other courts. two sets of counsel. We had an amicus curiae, not simply sending in a brief which we read, but given leave to argue for half an hour. One representing a body called Doctors for Life, basing itself on provisions in the Bible, which they contended confined marriage to heterosexual couples only and also a representative of the Marriage Alliance whose 
arguments were backed up by an affidavit by Cardinal Napier of the Catholic Church. On the other side, representatives of the couple whose position was simply, we simply want to get married, full stop. And counsel for the Gay and Lesbian Equality Project, who dealt with broader aspects of the issue. There were nine judges hearing the matter. I was one of them. And I knew that the matter was going to be assigned to my chambers if the position that we adopted corresponded to the majority position. When you sit up on the bench, you don't consciously go through your mind in terms of past experiences that might influence how these things happen. But it so happened that an event two weeks earlier was so startling and, and unexpected that I couldn't get it completely out of my mind. And it was a counterpoint to something that had happened in 1991. I'd just returned from exile. I'm in Cape Town. It's the first time I'm learning to drive. I'm driving a motor car after I lost my arm. I'm very nervous. I'm very anxious. It's a hot day. I don't know my way through the streets after 24 years of exile. And I'd been invited to participate in Cape Town's first Gay Pride March. Johannesburg had had one the year before and I'd spoken out quite frequently on the importance of equality in this area. I was invited to participate. I couldn't participate because in fact I was attending a heterosexual wedding that weekend, but it was a well-known couple in the struggle so people knew it was legit. <laughs> now it's Cape Town, my hometown, and now if I don't turn up, that's, that's really bad. And I'm sweating. I'm sweating because I'm driving through unfamiliar roads, and I'm nervous driving with one hand. I'm sweating because it's December and it's hot, and I'm sweating because I'm sweating. <laughs> and I wanted to have a placard saying, Straits for Gays. But the very idea of having a placard like that would be undermining the purpose of participating in the march. And I came late. And to make it worse, people said, at the usual place where we gather. And I didn't even know where that was. The great revolutionary freedom fighter didn't even know after 24 years where people were gathering. And eventually I saw the group marching. They'd obviously given up on waiting for me. Past the city hall. And the very first poster I see says, Suck, don't swallow. Oh my God. <laughs> uh, see my picture in the newspaper right next to that poster the next day and the sweat pours down even more and eventually I found parking and I 
ran to catch up with the group. And the minute I joined their ranks, I felt wonderful. I felt I'd crossed over. And it so happened the person I walked next to was Edwin Cameron, who's now on our Supreme Court of Appeal, and one of his judgments, very really eloquent, whether one agrees with it or not, the, the style of the presentation is marvelous. He was the person I was walking with. And I remember we ended up in a small park close to where I'd grown up as a kid. And it just occurred to me, in those days when I grew up, the park would have signs saying, whites only. But there were invisible signs, as powerful, saying in effect, straights only. That same kind of exclusion of open participation in effective, effective relationships and so on, that would have prohibited black and white from being together in the park and holding hands applied on grounds of sexual orientation. And it came through very strongly to me that the issue went well beyond simply doing justice to a section of the community that had suffered marginalization, exclusion, and, and oppression. It said something about what kind of country is South Africa. The relevance of it, and the reason perhaps why we have expressed reference in our constitution to sexual orientation, the first and one of the very few constitutions in the world to do that, was people who had known what it's like to be treated in a particular way because you are who you are, could understand other people, their claims for inclusion and for recognition. And so, if you like, there was a generosity, an openness, a tolerance in its positive sense in the body that drafted and adopted our constitution that saw that this wasn't simply a question of rights for gays and lesbians. It was a question of tolerance of people living together in one country, being able to be who they were, to express their differences, and share a common sense of human inclusion, a common citizenship in the society. So that was the one background story which it was 14 years earlier, I might have forgotten it. If it hadn't been for one of those curious coincidences that some people would say some higher force had to be involved. The Chief Justice of South Africa, Pius Langer, had received an invitation from a group called Christian Lawyers in Africa to open a conference they were due to, to, to hold in Johannesburg <coughs> about two weeks before the hearing of the what came to be known as the same-sex marriages case. And he wasn't able to attend. He had work to do in another country. And he said, who would be available? And I happened to be on recess duty in the court at the time, and the other colleagues had dispersed. So I said, well, I am here, and I'm willing to speak to lawyers of any kind from anywhere in the world. Uh, 
I'm not sure if I'm the right person to go. <laughs> and he said, no, I think he actually wanted me to go. So that it wouldn't be a Christian lawyer speaking to Christian lawyers of Africa, it would be a judge who happened to be Christian or not happened to be Christian, and he knew that I'm a Jew, uh, I'm not religious, I'm not observant, and he felt, let me go to speak on behalf of the court. And the hall was packed, and it was actually quite wonderful to see all the costumes, the dress, it was the opening occasion. You saw the diversity of the continent, men and women from different parts of the continent, and the single thing they had in common, they were Christian advocates, clearly most of them very, very devout, and one would assume would have strong and rather conservative feelings on the kind of issue that was about to be heard in our court. And I spoke to them at the opening about the problem I had when called upon to take the oath as a judge of the court. And one by one my colleagues had taken the oath and most swore, and you raise your right hand when you swear, and a couple affirmed, and you put your left hand forward. And I had to decide what to do. Now I grew up in a home that was not religious, and it was extremely tough for me at school not to pretend religious beliefs which I didn't have. My whole conscience was shaped on religion, not on race in South Africa. And the right to be true to my inner state of thought about God, about existence, about, about religion. And it was very, very hard. In the school, half the kids were Jews, half not. And you were expected to align yourself and align yourself in a way that had a lot to do with formal religion. And I told all this to the, to the audience. And then I said, then I was alphabetically challenged. Sachs, I was the last of the, judge, the judges. So I had to see all the others and I'm saying, should I, shouldn't I, should I, shouldn't I? And eventually I decided the only way I could raise my right arm would be if I swore. And I felt the most sacred oath I could make to be loyal to the Constitution, what the Constitution stood for, would be to my arm. It would be the oath of commitment to memory of Ruth First who died, blown up by a bomb in Maputo, all the others who were killed, the people who'd suffered in prison. And if I was going to swear faithfulness to the Constitution, then I would raise this arm, which I did. And I said, so help me God. The Christian advocates from Africa stood up and cheered and cheered and cheered. Two days later, I invited them for a tour of the court. I took them around the court. Wonderful building we have in the heart of Johannesburg's most notorious prison. And at the end of it all, I was anxious to get away because uh, I had another group I had to speak to in the women's jail. 
dealing with uh, children's rights and someone said you're late and I said now I really have to leave and they said no we have to pray for you and it was one of those prayers not just a prayer of lovely prayer of benevolence but people in their prayers read in quite a lot and they make little speeches and they say a bit of this and a bit of that and the things that they believe are quite important all wrapped up in the prayer and I sort of bow afterwards and I say thank you and I'm about to rush off when they grab me and they say no we must lay hands on you and so they held me back quite literally <laughs> for quite a long time and eventually I moved away now I tell you these two stories because I was quite moved by both experiences they were both very South African experiences and the tension in the case for me was is it possible to get any kind of connection between those those groups where I've been involved I've been honest I've been open in both cases or is one forced to make a kind of a choice which side are you on and what role can a court play in developing that sense, even if it's a not a direct conversation and dialogue, at least a sharing of a sense of existence with the others, very much opposed to what you want, in the same country. Isn't that one of the things a constitution is about? It's not there simply to guarantee rights for some people, but to establish a layer, a foundation, a sense of basic fairness and right and ways of dealing with things that even people who as it were lose out in terms of particular argument particular outcome can feel I understand it that's right this is the kind of country I want to live in now that's a kind of very insubstantial uh, contextual background in which the formal legal arguments are playing themselves out and I'm aware that I've got eight colleagues on the bench each one of whom would have similar set of preconceptions and backgrounds and understandings and so on I don't know what they are and I'm not going to ask them what their particular viewpoints might be what were the arguments The first argument on behalf of the state, are most of you lawyers by the way? Most of you are not lawyers? Well a good constitutional argument should be as easily understood, maybe more easily understood by a non-lawyer than, than by a lawyer. The first argument was our constitution does not grant a constitutional right to be married therefore there's no violation of a constitutional right marriage doesn't even come into it if gay and lesbian couples have a complaint well they can go to parliament they can push for recognition of their need for their rights amongst themselves to be recognized has got nothing to do with marriage because there's no guaranteed right to marriage and there's nothing in our constitution that refers to marriage it wasn't difficult to answer that 
because there is a right to equality and dignity. And if the refusal to give access to marriage or the status which marriage gives and the rights, benefits and responsibilities that flow from marriage, if that is not made available to people on grounds of their sexual orientation, then clearly there's a violation of their right to equal protection of the law and their right to dignity because it's saying you're just not worthy and your love and your affection and your eagerness to share your life with another and to share the responsibilities and to be publicly recognized as a couple is somehow inferior to not equally valid to that of heterosexual couples. And we had five cases in South Africa where we dealt with that. We struck down the law that made sodomy a crime. It's an old common law crime. We declared that partners, gay and lesbian partners of South Africans, partners who were coming in as immigrants, should have the same status as married partners for purposes of employment, residential rights. We declared that Cathy Satchwell, who's a judge in the High Court, was entitled to nominate her lesbian partner for pension rights purposes. We declared that Justice, Madam Justice DeFoss and her lesbian partner were entitled to equal parental rights in relation to a child one of them had adopted. And we declared that the words or same-sex life partner had to be included in a law dealing with parentage of a child born through artificial insemination. So there were five cases and in each case it was the right to equality and dignity that was the foundation of declaring the law to be unconstitutional. And the effect was that if the Marriage Act grants rights and possibilities to heterosexual people and doesn't accord the equivalent to same-sex couples, that is not a formal exclusion in terms of no blacks allowed, no Indians allowed, no Zulu speakers allowed. There's no formal exclusion in that sense, but it's an exclusion by making people invisible. You just don't count, you just don't get the regard of the law. And so there are many ways of discriminating against people. And, and I enjoyed putting in a little footnote from uh, South African queer literature, one of our prominent writers, uh, DeForce. Uh, he quoted the American experience of saying that a young African-American wouldn't come home and say, Mom, Dad, there's something I've got to tell you, I'm black. <laughs> uh, 
so it's the invisibility of the and, and the non-recognition and the exclusion marginalization that constitutes the discrimination. Then there were four other arguments that said, all right, it might be unfair, it might be discriminatory, but you can't blame the Marriage Act for that. And the first was marriage by its nature is related to procreation. Now we dealt with that in the immigrants' partners case. And there are many people marry without intention of procreation. Many marry beyond the age where they can have children. Children are adopted. There are a whole variety of family formula for formations. And it's clearly incorrect to say that marriage is about procreation. It might be an important element in many marriages, and historically, obviously, it's been important, but it can't be definitional. Then there was an argument about marriage was constituted by religious bodies long before the law took over. The law simply recognized a form of relationship created by religious bodies. That didn't correspond to contemporary marriages, whatever the origin might have been. And in any event, historical research showed that marriages were recognized in Roman law, formal, informal, uh, and this was a way of imposing a definition and a self-referential definition that uh, couldn't really stand up. But the question was, is the religious argument totally irrelevant? And I devoted a lot of attention in the judgment to the significance of religion for believers. Most South Africans are believers. That's the reality in which the, con the, the, the Constitution functions. So you can't say that there is a state, a world out there, that's like a neutral ether that has no belief systems in it at all. And then in your own private sphere you can have religion in your home, you can have religion in your church or synagogue or, or mosque, uh, but it's got nothing to do with the world in which people live. That's a very artificial approach to religion and the significance of religion. And the most intricate part of the judgment for me was trying to balance out the relationship between the sacred and the secular. And I asserted that neither should try and oust the other. That the secular should recognize and respond to and acknowledge and protect the sphere of the sacred without dictating to the sacred. But similarly, the sacred could not <coughs> dictate to the secular and trying to develop a concept of coexistence of intensely held beliefs in the world. And to me, this is very central to the constitutional endeavor. It's not by saying there's belief here 
and a state area over there. It's this coexistence of passionately held, deeply committed views. I know how hard I had to fight as a child for my right not to believe, and it makes me understand people who do have beliefs. It's everything. It's about creation. It's about destiny. And you can't simply say, well, it's a taste. I like this kind of ice cream, or uh, I don't like ice cream, or I like broccoli, or I don't like broccoli. It's something much more meaningful and significant than, than that. And in fact, our marriage law recognizes that, because religious bodies can continue to perform religions, uh, to perform marriages in terms of their religious doctrines. It's recognized in the Marriage Act itself, and that will continue. And no, nothing that the court says about the rights of same-sex couples to enjoy the benefits that heterosexual couples have through marriage can be imposed upon the religious groups. They maintain the autonomy in their own sphere. It's not impinged upon. And the judgment went further towards the end, saying even in the area of the state marriage ceremonies, in the magistrate's court, the city hall, wherever it might be, if there are religious, if there are marriage officers whose religion would make it against their conscience to perform a ceremony like that, then in the principle, according to the principle of reasonable accommodation, the state should seek to find somebody else to do that. So that these marriage officers are not forced to a choice between their conscience and their beliefs on the one hand and their duty as state employees on the other. International law was quoted. The Universal Declaration of Human Rights says every man and woman has the right to establish a family. And that was used as an example to say international law requires only men and women. It was very tenaciously argued, and the response in the judgment was that even if only men and women were contemplated at that time, the main purpose of the Universal Declaration was in fact to protect women against child marriages, to establish equality within that relationship. There was no express exclusion of same-sex couples. They weren't even contemplated. But in any event, if human rights law remains frozen, it atrophies. It has to evolve. It has to develop as concepts and attitudes develop. And at that time, in 1948, colonialism was regarded as ordinary, normal, and was accepted by international law. To use an example that was very well understood in South Africa. And finally they argued in terms of some provisions in our constitution <coughs> designed primarily to allow Muslim marriages, African customary law marriages to be recognized even if they gave rise to a different marriage system to the one that the standard marriage provided for. And we said, I said that this was permissive, not obligatory, and that was the end of that. 
Finally, our law says in terms of the substantive aspects, a whole series of rights are set out in our Bill of Rights. And then there's a general clause, we call it the limitations clause at the <coughs> end. These rights may be limited by a law of general application which is reasonable and justifiable in an open and democratic society. Our Constitution requires us to use the standards of an open and democratic society. And we will look to Canada, we look to the United States. Quite often in the United States we find more support from minority judgments in terms of philosophy and values and thought. We're not looking for precedence, we're looking for approach. How judges grapple with the problems of contemporary society. And the justification advanced was, well, the majority of South Africans just can't take the idea of same-sex couples being married. And the state can take account of the feelings amongst the general population. Why not? Isn't that democratic? And the answer was, if these feelings are based on prejudice, that's exactly what a constitution is designed to counteract. That's why you have a Bill of Rights. You don't need a Bill of Rights if you're simply going to follow majority opinion. So when it becomes necessary, the court will intervene and say, no, the Bill of Rights gives these guarantees, and we have those guarantees. Some of the toughest problems in the case related to the, the remedy And most of the state arguments really boil down to saying this is not an issue for the court to decide. This is an issue that touches deep sensibilities. It's a big public issue. It's an issue for Parliament. It's for the legislature. It's not for the court. And my colleague Kate O'Regan, who wrote a dissent on this particular aspect, agreed with the total opposite of that view, saying it's only for the court when fundamental rights are being violated in this way. Here and now, we can read into the statute the words or spouse to guarantee those rights, and we can rectify the common law. Straightforward, clean, easy to do. The Constitution says that once the court has declared a law to be unconstitutional, invalid because of unconstitutionality, then it will make an order that is just and equitable. And the order can include suspending the operation of the Declaration of Invalidity to give Parliament an opportunity to correct the defect. So the second half of the case dealt with should we suspend it to give Parliament that opportunity? And the state was saying, you must, you must. And the religious representatives were saying, you must, you must. And Kate O'Regan, my colleague, was saying, nothing doing. And this was the area where I felt you can't rely simply on pure legal logic to get an answer. And in any event, the con whole concept of justice and equity presupposes a broader vision. 
And my concern was really what would most firmly and securely advance the cause of equality in this area? An immediate decision imposed by the court which would be seen as a constitutional court decision lacking any kind of popular legitimacy couldn't that be seen as perpetuating the marginalized status of these marriages even if they call marriages it's like a force feeding constitutional outcome that was one element of it the other element also was it's not only the courts that have a duty to uphold constitutional rights. In fact, the primary duty is with the legislature. It would be very unfortunate to see the legislature is simply concerned with pragmatic matters of running government and distributing resources, and human rights belong to the courts. You can't have legislation in that kind of, in that kind of setting. It's their duty, it's their responsibility to deal with the matter. And so in the end, the decision of the court was to suspend the declaration of invalidity for one year to send the matter to Parliament, but within a very clear principled framework. Parliament couldn't say, well, Maybe we'll give them the rights, maybe we won't. The rights were there. We said that if Parliament did nothing at all for a year, then automatically the words or spouse would be read into the legislation. So inaction on the part of Parliament would include that. But there were two mechanisms that Parliament could use that were raised before us and one could envisage a third or fourth or a fifth. The one was simply to read in the word or spouse. The other was something the South African Law Reform Commission had come up with. It was a proposal after extensive inquiries and research and meetings with different groups. And they said it's not legally compelled but they just feel that to balance out the different factors and interests involved, their proposal would be to have an Umbrella Marriage Act and within that to have the present Marriage Act rephrased Conventional Marriages Act and then to have another Generic Marriage Act to enable people who didn't want to marry specifically in terms of the Conventional Marriages Act to get married as spouses, or as husband and wife, but not necessarily under the Conventional Marriages Act. And then there would also be a Marriage Act for Muslims, and a Marriage Act for African customary law. And in that sense, the diversity of the nation, and the diversity of ways of constituting families would be expressly recognized in the statute. Now we didn't say whether this would meet constitutional standards or not. We simply said that's another option and Parliament must grapple with these questions before the matter is retested in the Constitutional Court. And finally we said that without pronouncing in advance 
two principles have to guide Parliament. The one is when you're dealing with a law that's under-inclusive, it has a gap, it makes people invisible, it just doesn't take account of them, they're just not included. There are different ways you can respond to that. You can respond to that by taking away rights from everybody equally. And we refer to that as equality of the graveyard. <laughs> or there's equality of the vineyard. We got this from an American writer. And clearly this is an area, it deals with status, it's celebration, it's joy, and it's also heartbreak. There's nothing more bipolar than, than marriage with the greatest excitement and the deepest depressions, all involved in the law having to respond, respond to both. And we said that, um, so that's one principle then. You don't want to distribute resentment equally and prevent heterosexual couples from having the marriage that they used to, simply to bring in gay and lesbian marriages then everybody feels, I didn't use the word pissed off, but uh, everybody feels equally irritated and annoyed. And the second was to avoid the separate but equal. To give something to gay and lesbian couples that enabled them to get some legal recognition, but that somehow and purported to be equal, but that somehow diminished the quality and the status. And we emphasize very strongly that it's not simply the legal arrangements and the right to divorce and the property arrangements, the intangibles are as important. It's the public celebration, it's the recognition, it's the anniversaries. All these things come into it. And that would be part of the setting. So the order was that the declaration was made, the laws that stood was unconstitutional to the extent that it made no provision for same-sex couples to achieve the status, uh, entitlements coupled with responsibilities that it afforded to married couples. The declaration was suspended for one year to give Parliament the opportunity to correct that omission in the law. And if Parliament failed to do so, that's by the 2nd of December next year, then automatically the words or spouse would be read into the, into the Marriage Act. Uh, my friend Navi Pillay, who's a judge on the International Criminal Court, was sitting in the court. She came to have tea with us afterwards and she said there was great excitement outside and people were hugging each other and I wasn't quite sure who was hugging uh, were the religious groups happy because the matter's going to Parliament and they'd still have another chance to mobilise were the same-sex couples happy? Who were these people wearing the t-shirts? <laughs> and she said, no, no, the t-shirts said marriage or nothing, uh, which is a rather totalist uh, approach, but that's, that's a fundamental right. And they were hugging each other. Uh, 
I'd just like to read maybe just one passage from the judgment. I'm not here to defend the judgment. Uh, I'd hate to feel I'm a judge going around telling people what the judgment really meant, what it said. I'm here just to explain to you the context in which the judgment was issued and it would speak for itself, be interpreted in terms of its own uh, logic and, and, and wording. Uh, I remember uh, my friend uh, Ruth First uh, used to say to us, why do you end your uh, essay with a quotation from somebody? You must take responsibility. <laughs> You're not adding anything by, and if it was a Marxist, they would quote Karl Marx at the end, or if it was somebody else, Darwinian would quote Darwin, or whatever it might be, or Freudian quote Freud. You take responsibility. But now I can quote myself. <laughs> I'm not... betraying Ruth's principle. And it's really on the right to be different. To penalize people for being who and what they are is profoundly disrespectful of the human personality and violatory of equality. Equality means equal concern and respect across difference. It does not presuppose the elimination or suppression of difference. Respect for human rights requires the affirmation of self, not the denial of self. Equality therefore does not imply a leveling or homogenization of behavior or extolling one form as supreme and another as inferior, but an acknowledgement and acceptance of difference. At the very least, it affirms that difference should not be the basis for exclusion, marginalization, and stigma. At best, it celebrates the vitality that difference brings to any society. The issue goes well beyond assumptions of heterosexual exclusivity, a source of contention in the present case. The acknowledgement and acceptance of difference is particularly important in our country, where for centuries group membership based on supposed biological characteristics such as skin color has been the express basis of advantage and disadvantage. South Africans come in all shapes and sizes. The development of an active rather than a purely formal sense of enjoying a common citizenship depends on recognizing and accepting people with all their differences as they are. The Constitution thus acknowledges the variability of human beings, genetic and sociocultural, affirms the right to be different, and celebrates the diversity of the nation. Accordingly, what is at stake is not simply a question of removing an injustice experienced by a particular section of the community. At issue is a need to affirm the very character of our society as one based on tolerance and mutual respect. The test of tolerance is not how one finds space for people with whom and practices with which one feels comfortable, but how one accommodates the expression of what is discomforting. Thank you.
To say anything following L.B. Sachs is a bit intimidating. I'm Susan Zesch, Director of the Human Rights Program, and it's my privilege to be up here to field some questions. What Justice Sachs told us is that he would like to get two or three questions on the floor, and then he'll address um, the issues raised in them sort of all together. And I don't know if we should give a prerogative to our uh, distinguished introducers, but if Professor Chauncey, Professor Nussbaum has a question, I want to think for a minute. I'll look out in the audience and then look back at you. Well, I, I do have one. Um, and the, the question is, um, your decision to leave it to the public debate, uh, how big a role was played by your assessment of what your public is like? I mean, obviously our public is, is, is uh, not going to do this anytime soon because there's a small, uh, relatively small, but, but intense and very wealthy group that will make it quite difficult for any legislator, as George said, to vote um, even if they want to on this issue. So, so I guess I'd like to hear more about how you, in your decision whether to leave it to the courts or to the legislature, how you uh, think about the rationality of your public. A couple of other questions. Rick Schwader. Um, it, was, it was fascinating. to avoid or to marginalize in your own, in your own talk, that of 
uh, the graveyard option of doing away with marriage completely. I, I, uh, I would be curious to know your thoughts as to why indeed that is not a, a good option. <laughs> I must say, this topic really uh, <laughs> touches people's imaginations <laughs> in quite extraordinary ways. Uh, I've regarded Chicago Law School as a very sober, very, very straight, um, rather solemn place. <laughs> we haven't thrown open the question for public debate like uh, in the chapter on Genesis. Uh, it's at, at, an, at a very advanced stage. The court has laid down very clear principles as to what's required. And the South African Law Reform Commission has been working about six years. They produced many reports that actually got draft legislation. So there are very crisp options before Parliament. And it's maybe an assessment what Parliament would do. Uh, well, let, let, them, let them do it. You know, if you don't trust Parliament, if you're starting off with a distrust, then it's almost self-fulfilling. And who's in the corner? Is Parliament in the corner or is the court in, in, in the corner, really? Uh, it was the same Parliament that introduced sexual orientation as a clause in the Bill of Rights. The same institution. Uh, President Thabo Mbeki uh, spoke out before while we were still in exile on the question of uh, equal rights or non-discrimination on grounds of sexual orientation. Uh, these aren't factors you sit on the bench and you give so many points to this factor or the other. I'm just mentioning historical factors that, that could be relevant here. And, um, well, it, it goes to Parliament now. They can't say or Parliament can't say we were never given an opportunity. The body is opposed to recognition of uh, same-sex unions and we, we didn't actually use the phrase the right to marry as such because that in a way is the court now presupposing. Uh, but we said the right to have the same status and benefits and responsibilities that are accorded to heterosexual couples. And the two examples that are held up both use the word marriage. Uh, we let Parliament grapple with that and think about it. And I think that myself, as a Democrat, that's very, and a constitutionalist, it's very salutary that they actually debate it, that their portfolio committee receives representations, that it hears from the religious bodies and, and deals with the arguments and argues rationally so that the issue goes out there and becomes a public issue, but a public issue within the constraints of what the Constitution demands and what the court has already said. So one has that confidence, but my confidence is slightly increased by hearing what we heard right at the beginning, 
the advances that have been made by legislators in this country. And um, I mean, I've heard Ruth Bader Ginsburg saying that maybe the whole abortion issue would have been more strongly promoted if there'd been stronger attention paid to the legislators early on and less reliance on the Supreme Court pronouncement, mobilization around the fringes, the fringes of that and so on. And may, if I can just use this as a moment to, to bring in uh, a kind of background reflection I have. It's very worrying to me how polarizing decisions of the US Supreme Court have been in this country. One would like to believe a decision of the court would help unite the nation, bring people closer together. The way it's worked out, because they are reflecting cultural, social divisions that are there already, but one senses they're intensifying the divisions because of mobilization around it. Uh, and, and I do find it alarming. And it's, of course it's different from country to country. Uh, comparing major issues like this, capital punishment, there our court decided, maybe not against Parliament, because Parliament referred the matter to us in effect, uh, probably against majoritarian opinion in our country, that capital punishment violated the principles of our Bill of Rights. And you can't have a little bit of capital punishment. There's no room for <laughs> negotiating there. And our country is becoming increasingly used to that. There's still moments of campaigning and so on about it, but uh, I would say it's less virulent now, the pro-capital punishment current than it was some years back. The um, question of school prayers, that's solved in our constitution. Schools can have prayers, but it's got to be done on an equal basis between different faiths and no discrimination against non-believers. Then it becomes a practical measure of how to do it. But we're not working on the basis of that strict separation, which would have been, it, it would have meant that instead of democracy having a soft land, landing in our country, there would have been such turmoil over prohibiting prayers in schools that had done it for decades and the majority of the population being religious, they wouldn't understand what kind of constitution is this that prevents us from singing our hymns and having our prayers, which gives us a sense of confidence and grace. So now it's a question of tempering it in a way that meets constitutional standards. In terms of abortion, maybe the fact that 30% of ANC members of parliament on the list system had to be women, very strong women's caucus, uh, in Parliament when the Constitution was developed, there are strong rights uh, in relation to reproductive choice. It's in the Constitution. And so we've hardly had any litigation on that. Uh, in terms of homosexuality, I've already indicated what the history has been. And in terms of uh, presidential powers, which I see is quite a big issue here, uh, all I can say is, in South Africa, it's unthinkable that the president could do anything that uh, was inconsistent with the Bill of Rights. And we've said that uh, in a judgment where the president actually exercised powers of clemency, which wasn't all that controversial. And 
it's quite unthinkable in our country. We fought so hard to have a Bill of Rights that's binding on all exercises of public power. Uh, the idea of the President, and I'm not speaking about the US because it wouldn't be appropriate for me to make any comments on the situation here. Uh, I'm speaking about South Africa now. That idea that our President could do something that was somehow beyond the Bill of Rights, uh, it's just unthinkable. You know, you, you would fail the very first test in the first year of a law school if you even, even suggested that. So, um, but what we're trying to do is to maintain a sense of conversation with the legislature rather than a striking down or an ordering to the legislature. Uh, and the approach in this case, uh, it was quite interesting, the response from the religious community was uh, a fairly gracious one, saying that we took religion seriously, the matter is going to Parliament, they'll obviously have their say there, but it wasn't a knee-jerk, violent kind of reaction. Uh, maybe the people who laid their hands on me feel <coughs> that it wasn't completely <laughs> wasted. <laughs> uh, the question of gay polygamous marriages, it's no different from heterosexual polygamous marriages. It's not a specifically <coughs> gay, gay issue. Uh, and we haven't really dealt with the legality of polygamy in, in our country yet. Uh, there's a tension, people have pointed out, between respect for culture, different religions on the one hand, and the equality principle on the other. And an argument has been made out that polygamy by its nature presupposes, involves inequality between men and women. But it's not... That's been the issue there. Whether, whether it... Right, whether it would have a, an extra dimension, uh, that, that's completely off the agenda at the moment, but uh, it could crop up at some stage. But it, it's, it's not relevant to the question of recognition of gay and lesbian marriages. But the issue raised, it's an interesting one, certainly from a technical legal point of view. Uh, one day it might arise and then um, people will have to find appropriate responses to it. Uh, the, the second part of the, your, your, your second question, uh, to say, well, you don't need sex at all in marriage, uh, in, in the case dealing with the uh, immigrant partners, the argument of the state was, well, uh, these people, often I say these people, they can get married. There's nothing to stop them from getting married. Uh, they can't marry each other, but they can get married. Uh, And there's nothing to stop them from living a gay lifestyle. Where's the problem? It was the intersection of being gay, sexual orientation on one hand, and the right to marry that was the problem. You had to put the two elements of equality together. The only way they could continue as gay people to express their affection and mutual support for each other presupposed if they married, they would marry somebody of the same sex. And that's what they couldn't do at that stage. 
the radical proposal over there, uh, the equality of the graveyard, um, many people choose to live together with their partners uh, without formalizing it in marriage, but that's a choice. But most people want to marry, and according to the gay literature that I read, most gay couples want the right to marry. Uh, they want the right to be able to choose. To abolish that choice is not consistent with our constitutional duty. Uh, to give people more opportunities, more chances of self-expression uh, rather, than, rather than less. So, um, apart from the image being the worst kind of image one could imagine according to the graveyard, it meant really one proposal that was made was to abolish marriage except in churches, to abolish marriage completely in the public sector and to simply have civil unions for everybody. I'm not saying that that's impossible, but if that's seen as going towards the graveyard, then it wouldn't meet the principles that, that we suggested. <coughs>